You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. It is truly good to worship with you this uh, morning. Um, and today's teaching, as you heard, is going to be out of 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 uh, through 7. Now, what we're going to see is Peter reveals something to us about marriage, about gender roles, and the beauty that lies within these things. Now, in, 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 verse, in these verses, right, you're going to see that six are aimed at wives and one for husbands. So though it may seem as if Scripture is, is picking on women, no, that's, that's not the case. I assure you uh, that's not the fact. Uh, in fact, the reverse is true for uh, Paul in Ephesians 5, right, where most of that is dedicated to the conduct of husbands. But there are reasons, I think, for why Paul is speaking to women here uh, in these churches in the Asia Minor. Uh, this verse, by the way, that we see dedicated to men is telling uh, men what they needed back then in 64 AD, but also I think speaks loudly to us today. If you're a note taker, uh, I want to encourage you. Uh, it is Our points are the problem with submission, the problem with beauty, and the problem with men. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for this time that is dedicated to you and dedicated to worshiping you and studying your word. Lord, I pray that we meet today's text not by frustration or irritation in the word that you've given us, but by acceptance and submission to it. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We want to honor you in all things. But I pray that this morning you give me clarity, that you give me boldness, and Lord, that uh, your word can bring about reproof and correction, that it will train us up in righteousness as you promise. But we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First, let us look at the problem with submission. I'm going to be looking at 1 Peter 3, verse 1. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, this is continuing a point. Notice it says, likewise. This is a continuing point. Just as the gospel had implications on how we are to interact with the state, like we saw last week, and, and how we are to interstate with our employers, like we saw last week, Likewise, the gospel has implications in the home. The gospel penetrates every sphere of Christian life. There is no such thing as a Sunday Christian. There's no such thing as a casual Christian. Every aspect of life is dedicated to him. And he is your king. All things ought to be submitted to him. Now, Peter is dealing with a group of Christians whose lives have, have been somewhat turned upside down. Right? They've been converted to this faith, and now they exist in this lost world. And so Christians, as these new believers, have a lot of questions on how they're to interact with things. As a Christian, how do I deal with a pagan, ungodly government? As a Christian, how am I to deal with my employer? And as a Christian, how am I to deal in my marriage? These Christians have real questions. Again, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. 
Now, I'm sure none of us have failed to miss, right, that Peter went from last week talking about the institution of, of government, then to that of the workplace, and now to the institution of marriage. So what we see in right, all Christians be good citizens, all Christians be good employees, and now he turns, not only to talk about marriage, but specifically to wives in the congregations. And this is a term that I think no woman or any person really likes to hear, right? It says, be subject, right? Be submissive. You don't enjoy hearing that. I think there's reasons why. I think the first point, the reason why we don't like it is as Westerners, right? Especially as Americans, we buck the idea of submission, right? Submission gives pictures of, a, of letting a tyrannical government run amok. Submission gives pictures of slavery and forced labor. Submission conjures up in the mind times of the past when women were not allowed to vote and told such things like know your place, know your role. Submission paints a portrait of an inferior people bending the knee to some overlord or master or some sort of tyrant who will have his way with us. And as red-blooded Americans, right, we, when we hear the word submit, we turn into like Braveheart and we yell freedom. Right, for us, submission is the antithesis of liberty. And it's hard that we have to untie ourselves from the cultural presuppositions and embrace Scripture and define its terms the way the Lord defines His terms. There have been people that have gone through great lengths to try to redefine what this passage means. It's why the pastor who read it to us prior to, why he called it a controversial passage in our time. You'll have some who say, listen, to submit doesn't mean to submit. It means something else that's easier to digest. By the way, Paul actually goes further and says, submit in all things in Ephesians 5. But the efforts of the modern pastor to water down submission have been balanced by the other side of the pendulum, the fundamentalists who degrade women and what they have to offer. I think the problem with submission is not the biblical concept, but the baggage we bring to the table when we approach such a topic. If, as a wife, being subject or being submissive to your husband is a hard thing to do, then we may be approaching it with a wrong motive or at least with a grave misunderstanding. We may be approaching submission as meaning the same thing as inferior. But what I want you to do is I want you to take our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is fully God, equal with the Father. Yet, Scripture tells us on many occasions that Christ submitted to the will of the Father. Is Christ inferior? No. Jesus is clear that he and the Father are one. Submission has nothing to do with inequality. Submissiveness speaks of trust. And I think the motive of submission can make the act either beautiful or terrifying. Now, we submit to people all the time, right? But submission is based on trust. I want you to think of if you were to go to a surgeon, right? You are submitting your life to a surgeon, 
And though we may be nervous, we trust they know what they're doing. Right? We trust them with the procedure. We teach our children to submit to their teachers. And by sending them away for eight hours a day, you are submitting to that teacher to take care of your children. If you've ever flown, you've submitted to a pilot as, as he thrusts thousands of pounds of metal into the sky, trusting that he will land it somehow without blowing up. You submit your life to him, and you trust him. Now let's take a different group of people. If I asked you, is it easy to submit to politicians? You would say, no. You don't want to submit to politicians. And why not? Because you don't trust them. The unwillingness and inability to submit has everything to do with trust. So husbands, let me just tell you and urge you, we need to be trusted. Now, I do want to say not all submission is godly. Right? The mode of submission can tell you I believe whether it's godly or ungodly, again, I want to take the Trinity. The Son knew the motive of the Father. There was trust in the Father, therefore a submissive nature. And the nature of Christ's submissiveness is motivated by love. Listen, you're not called to submit out of fear that your husband's going to hurt you. And nor husbands, that ought not be what you're projecting Submissiveness ought not to be out of a desire to get a reward or out of duty. We're called to submit and trust out of love. So wise, if submitting to your husband is difficult or demeaning, first, I'd ask that you would search the motive in which you approach it. Secondly, husbands, I'd ask... You, do you use fear or duty to force your wife into subjugation? If you lead in love, if you lead for her benefit, then being subject to you is not a burden. The problem with submission is that too often it is seen or defined as some sort of feminine attribute. Now, I want to remind you that submission is not a ladylike attribute. Submission is not a ladylike attribute. It is Christ-like. Ladies, Peter is telling you to practice what Christ practiced. As he submitted to the Father, you are to be submitted to your husband. And your conduct to your husband is meant to teach how we trust and love the Lord, right? Scripture says that wives, you reflect the church, that marriage reflects the gospels, husband reflect Jesus, wives reflect the church. So given that, we learn and see how the church is to conduct itself by looking at wives, and wives, you teach your family and you teach the congregation how the church is to conduct itself by the way you conduct yourself to your husband. What we see here in this first verse is God's order of creation. His word, his law, and given God is good, 
Right? This order is to be for our delight, and it's not some sort of affliction. It's not a punishment. And if done biblically, it's only painful because it breaks our pride. Now, submission can be hard if you do not trust, but it can be harder for those who are prideful. And Peter gives further explanation of this verse. Look at verses, I'm going to read 1 and 2. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, but by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. But what we see is submission brings about a Christian witness. In fact, we saw that last week as well. Our submission to the state and to our employers that it brings about a Christian witness. And so it's no surprise to you that that carries over into our marriage. And Peter's writing to many women, and I want you to take note of this, who are married to non-believing men. Notice it says, be subject to your own husband, so that even if some who do not obey the word, meaning they do not love Christ... They're unbelievers. And so you have these wives, these new Christian women saying, okay, well, what do I do now? I'm a new believer. What do I do with this marriage? I'm married to someone who does not worship. What do I do? His response is stay married and put your trust on display for those who do not even obey the word. Let your conduct speak to who you really submit to, which is your Lord Jesus Christ. And we see here, the submissive nature is loving, for it cares about the soul of the husband. And furthermore, it's loving in its desire to give God glory. The problem with submission is too often... We're only willing to do it when we believe it's deserved. But I want you to remember and last week, as Peter tells the churches to submit to the emperor, a pagan government, right? We're called to submit to the state not for the emperor's sake. We're called to submit to your employer not for your employer's sake. And though it may be a benefit to your husband, Wives are called to submission, but not for their husband's sake. Our submission in any area of life is rooted in our love for the Lord and in His law and in His word. That is not to say that there's not a time of rebellion against any institution, right? That is, the state, an employer, or even in a marriage, when the authority compels us to break God's law, we choose the one who we are chiefly submissive to, that is God. God created marriage, and though it is for you, it's important that you know it's not about you. The Lord has placed roles into marriage, a marriage covenant to illustrate and guide the two who become one. So wives, I want you to honestly ask yourself if you're willing to submit to your husband. Listen, there are husbands, I in every church, in this church, and churches in the Asia Minor and New Heights, where there are wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. 
And church, I ask that you pray for those wives, these women who are your sister, your sisters who struggle in that union spiritually. Pray for them. I can't imagine the struggle that would be, the heartbreak that would be to have a spouse you love but who rejects the gospel. Pray for them, that they're bold and faithful in their marriage to respect their husband. But there are also husbands here who want to lead. They want to lead, and they need your wisdom, wives. They need your support, and they need your help. But notice, Paul has to say, be respectful and let your conduct be pure. Simply put, wives, you cannot be quarrelsome. You cannot be quarrelsome in your wives or within the church. Always looking for a fight. Scripture has a lot to say about quarrelsome wives. It says it's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome wife. It says it's better to live on the rooftop than in the house with a quarrelsome wife. Because it's very hard to lead and lovingly care for a wife who constantly seeks to fight, who constantly seeks to be negative, and who constantly bucks the concept of being led. If that describes you as a wife, listen, I urge you to repent of that. Because again, you represent more than yourself. You represent the church, and the Lord has commanded you that your marriage ought to be a part of your worship. It's not separate from it. All of your life is on the altar, even your marriage. Next, we see the problem with beauty. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. First, let's, do not take this verse to mean that physical beauty is bad or, or not worth pursuing. Right? We, we ought not, because of this verse, neglect the Song of Solomon, where a, a wife and a husband are seeking to be beautiful and seductive for one another. A husband and a wife's physical and sexual attraction is good and godly, for he made it for us. We should strive as husbands and wives to seek to be attractive in love for one another. And so this passage, and Peter, he's not talking about that. He's not telling wives that Sorry, you all got to put away the jewelry and wear a potato sack. He's not punishing husbands for valuing their wife's beauty. You ought to value your wife's beauty. What it's saying is that you're more than your physical body. Wives, you need to know you are more than your physical body. Husbands, you need to know your wife is more than a physical body. Scripture is clear that physical beauty is, is good. It's a wonderful thing. But it passes. It fades. 
And just like beauty, wealth, the gold jewelry, it fades and it's eaten up. There's nothing wrong with being beautiful or having jewelry, looking nice. It's a good thing if we're grateful in the heart. But the problem with beauty is often we stop at our bodies and we fail to invest in an everlasting beauty found hidden in the heart, an imperishable beauty defined as gentle and a quiet spirit. This is a beauty that transcends and outlasts physical beauty. Of course, when we read this instruction for women, there are going to be some issues that some of you take with it. The words are going to jump out at you and you're going to see quiet, gentle. Well, that's sexist. That's offensive. But only if you bring the cultural baggage to the table. First, the term quiet is, a, is not a reference to speech. It's a reference to their spirit. If you saw quiet and you felt your blood pressure rise and realized the negative presumptions that you're bringing to Scripture, that it's not demanding. To have a gentle and quiet spirit does not mean a woman cannot speak or is unable to show strength or thoughtfulness. Notice it has to do with her spirit, not her mouth. At this time, Peter's writing this, there seems to be... For many women, those who are distraught do not have a peace because of the state of their homes, especially since many of their husbands are non-believers. And Peter's simply saying, let them see a beauty that we often forget about. Let him see a beauty that will not only be with you for 20 years, but will be with you for 70. The heart that is at peace, a spirit that shows restraint, a person who is gentle and passionate with their unbelieving husbands or their hard-headed husbands or their believing husbands who are simply just struggling to lead. The gentle and quiet spirit has more to do with beautiful faith in the Lord to work out all things for our good and his glory. And just in case you dare raise sexism against Peter or levy the accusation that because you know, I'm a woman, I'm called to have a gentle, quiet spirit, understand that, that gentleness is not a ladylike quality. Gentleness is not a ladylike quality. It is a Christ-like quality. Christ himself characterizes his nature as a gentle person and lowly of heart. 1 Peter 3, 5-6 says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I know some of you read this, and, and what Peter's doing is he's using an Old Testament saying, a woman by the name of Sarah, as an example for New Testament saints. He says, women, look at this woman of old. 
this great saint named Sarah. And some of you are going to notice as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, right? Husbands, you don't need to be elbowing your wives going, see, that's what I want to be called. Call me Lord from now on. If you remember the story, Peter's telling you the story for a reason. Uh, if you remember, Abraham has promised a son in, in, in his youth uh, when he's married with Sarah. He's promised a son, and, at the, uh, and the son is going, going to, uh, his sons, his descendants are going to be as many of the stars, and he's going to have a descendant that uh, is going to bless the world. Now, in their marriage, Abraham messes up a lot as a husband. And so, listen, if you're a husband who's messed up a lot, I'm going to make you feel a little bit better, or at least Abraham's going to. There's first the Hagar incident. If you know the old Hagar incident, let me explain it for you real quick. Abraham was promised a son. He says, Sarah, God promised a son. It's taken a long time. And Sarah's like, maybe we should help God out, fulfill his promise. Sometimes God needs our help. He's like, okay, let's do that. And, and was very quick, poor Abraham, poor, very quick, and jumped at the opportunity. He was going to take one for the team to have sex with another woman in order to have a child. Well, as all sister wife story goes, there was a lot of jealousy, and this didn't end up too well, as Hagar and her son Ishmael were not liked by Sarah. There's also the incident in Egypt as they're traveling through Egypt, vacationing maybe, they're going through and someone sees the beauty of Sarah and they, they say, Sarah, you are, this woman is beautiful and they wanted to take her back to the Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, to be a sex slave. They come up to Abraham, this man who's with Sarah, and they say, this woman's beautiful. What's your relationship to her? And Abraham does a quick evaluation of what's about to happen. He looks at her. He thinks about his own life. Looks at her. And he says, that's my sister. <laughs> he doesn't do this just once. He does it twice. Husbands, you can always say, hey, at least I'm not Abraham. When you forget to take out the garbage. But notice, after all of that, after all of that, what do we see here? That she calls her husband Lord. Even after the mess-ups, she does not hold this over her husband's head for the rest of his days. And you can only assume that he repented, and that was both shown in word and deed over time, that his repentance was real. But there's another noteworthy point about their story and really about the text that Peter's drawing from. He's quoting Genesis 18. It is when the Lord tells Abraham, you're going to get a son next year at this time. And of course, they were old by this time. And Sarah hears this news. And this is what's written in verse 12. Just show verse 12 on the screen. It says, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, why on earth is Peter quoting this odd part, this small little snippet in chapter 3? Why is he quoting Genesis 18? We see, I mean, there's, there's her, she's laughing out of a sign of doubt of God's ability. 
she calls herself an exhausted old lady. And then, she, and then when she mentions her Lord, her husband, she calls him old. Not real flattering. So I quote it, Peter. What I want you to notice is that when she calls her husband Lord, this isn't said out loud. Though her doubt is on display, despite all the baggage of the past, despite this crazy stress of having a child at an old age, notice the posture of her heart towards her husband. It's one thing to respect your husband in front of others, but her heart, the posture of her heart was one of respect she calls him Lord as she trusts Abraham. Hard thing to do to trust Abraham after his failings, but she does. She respects him and she trusts him and the Lord reveals her heart and this is why I believe Peter brings this about to show you that it's not just the outward actions of respect, but it's the posture of a wife's heart towards her husband. And you, wives, only know that, you and the Lord. What is the posture of your heart towards your husband? The problem with the imperishable beauty is that it requires wives to adopt a ministry that seeks to honor her husband more than herself. And that's not an easy task for anyone, especially when as husbands, we fail to act honorably far too often. This leads us to our final point, the problem with men. Look at verse 7 with me. Likewise, husbands, live, as, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So notice, likewise, right, in the same way, a way that is honoring to the Lord, do these things. So husbands, we're supposed, what are we supposed to be doing? First thing he says, says, live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, be considerate, husbands. Be considerate. Living with your wife according to who they are, to what they need, be considerate of them in all ways. That is, that we are to be kind and caring and not selfish. And something I would ask husbands and wives to do, and you probably know in your own heart as you evaluate how you are a husband, to ask yourself, does my wife see me as selfish? Does she see me as a selfless person or selfish person, and if you are selfish, then you will be difficult to submit and trust to. Husbands, if you are described as selfish by yourself or by your spouse, you're missing the point of what it means to be a husband. As I mentioned earlier, you, as Ephesians 5 tells us, represent Christ in the marriage covenant. You represent the one who was most selfless, selfless to the point of death. And if you are to be considerate, selfless, this means your actions need to be motivated by love of God and love of family. 
before love or yourself. The problem with man is our propensity to act selfish and even childish. Rather than bold, strong, and compassionate and considerate men who are leading our families. It is no surprise, I think, to anybody who's in the church, pastor church, in church for a length amount of time, that the most devout, sacrificial stewards and laborers in the church are oftentimes women. It's probably true back then, as Peter's having to remind men that you need to act like men. Strong in the faith, leading well. And notice in verse 7, he says, you are to be showing honor to the women. Simply mean you're to greatly respect them. So if you act like a tyrant at home, then this is telling you this is not the leader you're called to be. Respecting is not being weak, it's being strong. It's being strong in faith. Directing your family to the gospel. Reminding all in your household who God is and the beauty of his statutes and the depths of his grace. There's Peter here calls the women the weaker vessel. And of course, this is going to hit people differently. Some don't like this because they naturally look at the word weak and they stop there. And so listen, I do not think Peter's saying that women are the weaker vessel because they are the more emotionally fragile sex. I think emotional fragility has little to do with sex. And for the record, emotions aren't a weakness. Emotions are a good thing. Our Lord has emotions. He expresses emotions. Both anger both sadness, thus the expressions of emotions, it's not a weak thing, it's a good thing, it's a godly thing, done in the right way. Neither do I think the weaker vessel is a statement that, that all women are weak, or that all men are stronger than all women, right? This is typically what's raised by those who want to discredit or undermine the word here, right? Peter's not making that point. Rather, Peter's pointing out what seems to be an obvious fact, that husbands are typically physically stronger than their wives. Now you might, maybe a better question is like, okay, well, what's your point, Peter? Why are you pointing that out? To borrow from a phrase from Jen Wilkin, it was a really interesting article on the subject. I don't think it's so we can treat our wives like fine china, as if they're fragile little things. Right? Too, too, too fragile to be honest with, too fragile to to debate with? Are you all not have to walk on eggshells around your wife? Peter is speaking at this point to Christian husbands. And what I think he's saying is rather simple. Husbands, as the stronger member, you have a responsibility to protect your wife. as you are considerate with your wife, as you're kind and you're gentle and you're sweet and loving and honoring to your wife, you also ought to be fierce towards anything that may bring her harm. Husbands are not made to be cowards. 
But sadly, let me be honest with you, spiritually, many of us have become cowardly as we were scared to pray with our wives, as we're scared to pray for our wives, as we're scared to bring up anything biblical over dinner or in our home with our children. We ought to be willing to defend our wives both physically and spiritually. And often men get the former, right? I've never met a man who says he wasn't willing to defend his wife physically. And if he would, he would never admit it openly. Because we all would understand that's cowardly. But husbands, hear me carefully. Spiritual weakness and spiritual negligence has eternal physical ramifications. If not for this generation, then at least for your children and their children and their children. You set a precedent and a model that will have a legacy and that will impact generations to come. Husbands ought to protect their wives. Not just their bodies, because they're more than bodies. Not just their physical well-being, bringing home the bacon. But their souls. And for those who fail to provide these things, you know what Scripture says? It says you're worse than an unbeliever. I want that to sit with you for a moment. If you're failing in your duty to lead your family spiritually and you're unwilling to provide physically, it says you're worse than an unbeliever. You may find that harsh, but that's the word of the Lord. And what you love, you'll protect. And husbands, your Lord has given you a wife and you are to protect them physically and spiritually. The problem with men, so often we forfeit the role and responsibility to lead. Why do generations of women loathe the idea of being led by husbands? Maybe it's because so many have failed before us and so many of us continue to fail. Why would a wife want to submit to a spiritually adolescent man? To a weak man who's spiritually absent? And so husbands, you need to ask yourselves, how do you speak to your wife? Is it with gentleness? Is it with grace? Is it harsh? Is it brutal? Do you scream and yell at your wife using physical intimidation? Do you use harsh words to cut her heart, name-calling, belittling, degrading? You're called to honor your wife, to care for her soul, to lavish her with mercy, desiring to help her grow and be in a sanctifying presence in her life. 
Do you seek to honor her more than yourself, husbands? And I know this text has nothing to say about parents or fatherhood, so this is for free, but you cannot be a spiritually absent father and be a good husband. I want to say it again. You cannot be a spiritually absent father and be a good husband. Husbands, you are to lead. Pointing them to the gospel. Peter goes so far to remind these husbands why they ought to be considerate, why they ought to honor, why they ought to be strong and faithful husbands. And notice, it's not happy wife is a happy life. That is selfish. That's sinful. And if that is the desire of your heart, then repent of that. That's not why you're to lovingly honor them and respect them. It's not because it's your job or duty. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as they are the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Those wives, they're not just women. Those wives are heirs. Princesses to the king. And out of a love for the Lord, out of submission to Christ, you lead with grace with mercy, selfless and sacrificial, as to seek to represent Jesus in your home. And whether you like it or not, just like your wife teaches something about the church, you husbands, you represent Christ, and you're teaching her and your children something about Christ. Let that sink in. What does your conduct teach your wife about Jesus? That he's impatient, that he's ungracious, unforgiving, constantly bringing up the past, provoking, thoughtless. Hope not. Peter's reminding you that your wife has as much claim to the kingdom of God as you do. She's not less than you. In fact, she's God's little girl who you are to lead in love on this side of eternity. Listen, if you're a father of a little girl, imagine a man who would bully, who would mistreat, who would wound your precious daughter. What would you do to such a man? We'd all want to go Liam Neeson on him. We'd want to hurt him. At least I hope so. I hope husbands you'd want to def- or fathers you'd want to defend your daughters. But listen, God is more just than you, and His anger burns deeper than yours. So remember who you answer to, and remember to who your wife belongs. Remember who her father is and who redeemed her. As you speak to her, as you love her, as you lead her. Husbands, your wife is a gift from God. And she should know how precious the gift she is by your conduct towards her. 
Now, Peter is not speaking of ignorance here, right? Peter was married, right? We saw in the Gospel of Mark uh, that he has a mother-in-law. Uh, we also see in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of Peter. He's often called Cephas. But he speaks about Peter bringing his wife along in ministry with him. Now, obviously... He's bringing her along in physical terms, right? They're traveling together. Uh, but if you're seeking to honor your wife, men, now there are some men, right, you're, you're spiritually an adolescent. You're not seeking to grow. But there are some husbands who are seeking to grow and they're leaving their wives behind on their journey. That too is not honorable, If you were to honor them, we are striving and fostering a home where a beautiful faith can develop. If we are to honor them, we are leading a way that submission is not soul-crushing, but edifying, drawing them nearer to Christ, washing them in the water of the Word. If you're married, I ask you to reflect on these passages now, but also in private throughout the week. I was asked that you would have serious conversation with your spouses. Because you ought to look very deeply at your conduct and observe the way, husbands, you treat your wives and wives the way you treat your husbands. And ask the Lord where you need to repent, correct, and refocus. Church, your Lord is worthy of your marriage. He is our king. So when he says, submit to your husband, we do so for our Lord. Husbands, when he says, lead with grace, dedicate yourself to their edification, we do so for him. Not because our spouses are always worthy of it, but because our God in heaven created an institution that is to reflect the gospel we love, the gospel we proclaim, but also an institution that we are to enjoy, that is to be encouraging and sanctifying, building us up for our good and His glory. Church, my prayer is that your marriage can be just that. A sanctifying, encouraging institution. But that it can also be a great witness as it's used to disciple other Christians and as it's used to display the gospel to the lost. May that be our prayer. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.